This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we appreciate you tuning in to the show today. After decades of explosive growth, the Chinese economy is slowing down. Some in the West who have been worried about China's global ambitions and its open push to overtake the United States in all realms are breathing a sigh of relief. But trumpet writer Rafaro Manyepa explains that the trend may actually be more a cause for concern than relief. This episode also takes a look at Canada, where years of Justin Trudeau's gross mismanagement have led to record levels of inflation, out-of-control housing prices, a gutted military, rampant drug use and crime, and many other serious afflictions. So many are overjoyed to see conservatives now surging in the polls, but will getting rid of Trudeau really fix Canada? We'll take a close look at this question in a report from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. Meanwhile, Germany's alt-right magazine Compact has published an analysis arguing that the real culprit behind the Munich Oktoberfest bombing was none other than the American deep state. This is only the latest example of German forces working to portray America as evil and simultaneously whitewashing German history. This trend is reviving German nationalism, as we'll hear in a report from trumpet writer Josue Michels. And our last word is about a biblical figure who had some stunning trials, but who was not forgotten throughout them. And there are some inspiring lessons that we can all learn from digging into this account. So that'll be at the end of the program, and we'll begin now with this look at the China miracle apparently coming to an end in this report from Rafaro Manyepa. For the first time in decades, China's economy is struggling. Its local governments are $9 trillion in debt. The state-owned companies are hundreds of billions of dollars in debt. And it has enough unsold and empty apartments to house the entire population of Italy. Perhaps nothing better represents China's economic malaise than these 65 million empty homes scattered across the country. Derelict apartment buildings cut forlorn shapes across Shanghai's skyline. Streets, shops, and office buildings around Beijing, Ordo City, and Guomen Bay are uninhabited and desolate. The actual numbers don't make for lively reading either. Anti-China economists are salivating at the prospect of a slump. Exports fell for the third month in a row in July, 14% lower than the year before. They are at their lowest point since February 2020 when the pandemic forced the whole world to shut down. Key foreign direct investment metrics have plummeted by 87%, their lowest level for a quarter of a century. What exactly is causing China's economic struggles? Well, a hint lies in China's rates of youth unemployment. The Chinese government is reporting that 22% of 16 to 24-year-old Chinese are unemployed. Peking University professor Zhang Dandan thinks the actual number is closer to 50%. 
And he's probably right. Because last week, the Chinese government announced that it would stop disclosing the youth unemployment figures altogether. And therein lies the core problem for China's economy. Its strong-arm government is wrestling it into the ground. In 2021, over half of China's 100 largest publicly traded firms were privately owned. Today, it's only 39%. And that number is dropping. It turns out that communism is bad for business. That's not to say that China is the only struggling economy in the world. The global economy is currently in a state of flux, a situation going all the way back to the start of the pandemic. But China had arguably the most draconian response to the pandemic. Three years of lockdowns are proving to have induced an economic disaster. And so the vultures are circling. But is China really collapsing? It's important not to allow wishful thinking to obscure reality. China's original plan was to overtake the U.S. as the outright leader of the global economy. Its recent troubles indicate that it won't be able to do that. But China's failure to achieve its ultimate aim shouldn't invalidate everything else that it's achieved. In just over 40 years, China has vaulted from relative economic obscurity to being the second largest economy in the world. Its ascent was labeled a miracle for a reason. It was an astonishing mobilization of a robust population and government investment to create peerless rates of growth and expansion for successive decades. China transformed itself from an agrarian economy to the world's leading manufacturer. 29% of the world's manufacturing output comes from China. It leads the world in telecommunications, 5G development, electric car batteries and vehicles, all of which have helped China account for a third of the world's economic growth. And even though China's economy is burdened by debt, it is more from financing infrastructure investment rather than funding social welfare programs as it is in the United States. Therefore, expecting China to spiral down to the economic quagmire from whence it came is simply an unrealistic prediction, driven more by schadenfreude than reality. The world wants and needs China's products and the massive market that it offers. That means at worst, China's economy will probably fail to surpass America's, but still remain the second largest economy in the entire world. Even now, the predictions of China's doom are not based on an inert Chinese economy, but just one that's failing to live up to the high standards that it has set for itself these last few decades. The International Monetary Fund still expects China's output to grow by over 5% next year, more than any other major economy. In short, China is simply a victim of its own success. It's being compared to itself. But this loss in momentum was inevitable. Those celebrating China's economic slump believe that if China never overtakes America's economy, then it can never be a direct threat. That might be true, but the reason why China's economy is failing is even more concerning than the economic slump itself.
You see, Xi Jinping, China's leader, has a vice grip on China's government, its pandemic response, investment policy, and even private enterprise. State industrial policy and regulations were applied in the technology, infrastructure, and educational sectors. Any economic reforms, therefore, would weaken the power of the Chinese Communist Party and, by extension, Xi himself. But what about the plan to overtake and usurp America's global dominance? Well, economists believe that without political reform, there can be no economic invigoration for China. But Alicia Garcia Herrero of the Bruegel think tank told The Atlantic magazine that she thinks that the BRICS bloc can do what China's economy couldn't. She said, I think this is the plan, that she would say my economy might not be bigger than America's, but my bloc will be bigger. And therein lies the danger. China's economic problems are forcing it to look to its partners. In particular, China is being forced to look to Russia. Russia and China have been as thick as thieves for decades, drawing closer than ever in recent years. Throughout, Russia has been considered the senior partner in the relationship. But because of China's rapid economic rise when compared to Russia's relative economic stasis, some began to whisper that Russia's days as the outright dominant Asian force were numbered, if not already over. Those whispers grew louder when the Ukraine war dragged on longer than anyone anticipated, as the West all hurled sanctions at Moscow. And yet Russia is still here. Vladimir Putin has continued the war in Ukraine. He's eliminating his domestic enemies, all while somehow stabilizing Russia's own economy. Russia has made 7% more in oil sales this year than it had this time last year. Nations like India and China have been gorging themselves on Russian oil and natural gas, as have many European nations that can't completely do without it. Even with the European sanctions and price caps, Russia has been able to get his due by inflating shipping costs, which almost completely neutralizes the sanctions that are placed on them. China's economy is still struggling. Russia, on the other hand, against all odds and domestic discomfort, is still in the fight. Vladimir Putin is leading. China, with one eye on Taiwan, sees Russia aggressively and decisively taking on the West just to seize a sovereign territory it desires as its own. China sees Russia battling against sanctions and embargoes and still managing to increase its annual oil exports by over $1.8 billion. China sees Vladimir Putin relentlessly sacrificing economic stability for political power and national prestige. China sees Russia budget to spend 25% more on its defense this coming year. As China sees its own economy stall amid Russian determination, could it finally wholeheartedly submit to Russian leadership? It's hard to say whether this is the landmark event that will solidify that hierarchy, 
But the Bible does tell us that it is the ultimate hierarchy that will shape global geopolitics. Longtime trumpet readers will be familiar with our forecasts of a mammoth pan-Asian military alliance to rise up in the near future, one that the Bible calls the Kings of the East. This army will be the biggest in mankind's history with 200 million soldiers. A prophecy in Ezekiel 38 explains who will be in this army and who will be its leader. Ezekiel 38 verse 2 mentions Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Gog refers to Russia, while Meshach and Tubal are ancient names designating the modern Russian cities of Moscow and Tobolsk. Rosh is also an ancient name for Russia. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, explains in his booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, that Vladimir Putin is the Prince of Rosh that God inspired Ezekiel to write about 2,500 years ago. Russia is prophesied to be the king over the other kings of the East. The Ukraine war, it's all about Russia's and particularly Vladimir Putin's desire to establish a leadership position over former Soviet Union states. But it doesn't end there. The Bible prophesies that even more powers will be involved in this enormous Asiatic military force under Putin's command. Scholars generally agree, Mr. Flurry writes, that the land of Magog includes China. Mr. Flurry continues, Current events show this Asian army is taking shape already. You can see it in Putin's growing authoritarianism and also in his outreach to other Asian powers. Russia has supplied China with many military armaments over the last decade or so. It has also helped the Chinese go nuclear. For many years, the Russians have been allied with China, at least to some degree. For a time, many in the world, perhaps some in China too, thought that China would become the leading power. But Russia is the prophesied leader. And present economic realities might be what caused the present hierarchy to align with what the Bible says. That's why celebrating China's economic slump is misplaced joy. Global events are pushing us closer and closer to the formal creation of this military alliance. And once it does come into place, the Bible says that this Asiatic military horde is going to be responsible for the deaths of a third of all people on the planet. China's ascent to superpower status is not over. In fact, it is about to receive a helping hand and be the secondary power in an alliance that will accomplish untold violence and brutality. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. This is Trumpet Hour here on KPCG 101.3 FM. 
Thank you once again for joining us on the show today. Next up, we take a look at Canada. After years of Justin Trudeau's mismanagement, conservatives are now surging in the polls. But will replacing Trudeau with a conservative really fix the nation's foundational problems? For the answer, we'll go to trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, went viral at the beginning of September for calling both Pierre and Justin Trudeau Marxists. The comments were recorded while Polyev was campaigning door to door in the Toronto area. His dad put on, started putting this country down and uh, he's going to put it and put the nail in the coffin. Not if we can help it. His dad started doing a long time ago. Well, they're both Marxists. If you are a Canadian, you know something is wrong with the country. Inflation is at record highs. Housing prices are out of control. The military is a shadow of what it once was. Drugs and crime are rampant in the cities. Families are falling apart. And there seems to be no solution to any of these problems. People are losing hope. Yet, at the same time, more people are noticing there's an ideological agenda behind the decline. Since becoming leader of the Conservative Party one year ago, Polyev has been very effective at communicating people's anger and frustration with the trajectory of the country. His media savvy has capitalized on the growing resentment towards some of Justin Trudeau's policies. The most recent Abacus data poll showed the Conservatives with a 14-point lead over Trudeau's Liberal Party. Although an election must be called in 2025, it seems like Polyev would win an election if it was called today. All of this brings up some important questions. Can Polyev save Canada? And was Polyev right? Are Pierre and Justin Trudeau Marxists? People want answers on what is happening to their country. The truth is, Canada's government and institutions are rotten to the core, and it goes much deeper than anyone realizes. Pierre Elliott Trudeau is consistently voted the best prime minister in Canadian history. When Trudeau burst onto the scene in 1965, Canadians had never seen a politician like him before. Charming, brash, intellectually intimidating, cunning, and intrepid. The nation and media became caught up in Trudeau mania. As a result, Trudeau was never vetted before being given the reins of power. In a book called From Democracy to Judicial Dictatorship in Canada, The Untold Story of the Charter of Rights, it recounts, quote, Being swept along in the wave that was Trudeau mania, Canadians gave the Liberal Party a majority government in the 1968 federal election. Pierre Trudeau became prime minister and de facto leader of Canada as a result. While not widely understood at the time, he was dedicated to overthrowing the existing cultural and societal values as well as the Canadian system of governance. He came to power at a time when older Canadians were more deferential to authority and more trustful of politicians, while younger Canadians were caught up in the euphoria of Trudeau mania. Unless you could read French, nearly every voter knew nothing of his radical ideological background and influences. When Pierre Trudeau was 16 years old, his father, a successful businessman, 
died in Florida. The young Trudeau was attending the Brebeuf College in Montreal, founded by Jesuits in 1928. The now fatherless boy gravitated to the influence of two priests at the college, Marie-Joseph d'Anjou and Rudolf Dubay. Both these priests were Catholic communists who radicalized the young Trudeau. Dubay was a prolific left-wing author that published under the pseudonym Francois Hertel. It was Dubay that pushed Trudeau into the French left-wing philosophy of personalism. Personalism can be tough to define as a philosophy because there are a million different definitions and, and ways of, of thinking about it. But to sum it up, personalism is a philosophy that exalts human nature and the individual as the ultimate authority on morality and human conduct. In other words, the individual has the right to decide what is right or wrong, not God or not collective groups. Especially influential to the young Trudeau was Emmanuel Mornier, who was tempted to reconcile Catholicism and communism. That same book, uh, From Democracy to Judicial Dictatorship, continues, quote, Trudeau participated in the Frère Chasseur, who planned to rise up against the oppressors in Ottawa. He took part in street riots and worked in a secret society, the LX, to overthrow what was considered a corrupt system. End quote. Trudeau was an activist, an insurrectionist. In 1944, Trudeau began a period of international education by attending Harvard in the United States and then the Institut d'études politiques de Paris in 1946 and then finally the London School of Economics or the LSE in 1947. Trudeau's communist ideology became solidified as he interacted with many communists and Marxist professors. Trudeau admits in his memoirs that the most influential was LSE professor Harold Lasky, who wrote in one of his most famous books, quote, There cannot, in a word, be democracy unless there is socialism, end quote. It was at LSE that Trudeau began an uncompleted doctoral thesis on the relationship between Christianity and Marxism. Soon after, Trudeau visited Mao's China and the Soviet Union, attending propaganda meetings which aligned his view on foreign affairs with these communist regimes. In 1960, the Catholic priest, Abbe Gerard Saint-Pierre, called Trudeau, quote, the Canadian Karl Marx, unquote. Trudeau revealed his true intention in joining the Liberal Party in a Cité Libre and Le Devoir editorial which are both uh, newspapers in Quebec. Uh, in those editorials in October 12, 1965, he wrote, quote, It must never be forgotten that in the democracies that we know, the political party isn't an end, but a means, not a goal, but an instrument. End quote. Trudeau viewed the Liberal Party as a vehicle through which he could implement his Marxist agenda to radically transform Canada. In this regard, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was wildly successful. Not only did Trudeau radicalize the Liberal Party and the civil service, in 1982, Trudeau completed a coup d'etat by repatriating the Constitution and implementing the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This enabled the entrenchment of communist policies into the heart of Canadian democracy. 
The trumpet has written many times on the communist ideology of his son, Justin Trudeau, who is finishing the job and expanding the power of the federal government. Communist insurrection is the family business. So in a word, yes, Polyev is right. Pierre and Justin Trudeau are Marxists. However, the problem with Canada is that there has been a very weak opposition to the Marxist tide. The main reason is, is there has been a political continuum from Pierre Trudeau in 1968 until the election of Stephen Harper in 2006. So all the prime ministers, excluding two who were in office for less than a year, they're, they're not important. But in that time period, all these prime ministers, Pierre Trudeau, Brian Mulroney, Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, whether liberal or conservative, they all pursued the same fundamental policies. So that is 38 years of this ideology being entrenched into bureaucracy, civil service, and political organizations. The reason for this is that Mulroney, Trudeau, Chrétien, and Martin were all beholden to the same man, Paul Desmarais Sr., Desmarais, a Montreal billionaire, was friends with Communist China, and he backed Pierre Trudeau's policies. All of these men, these four men, and most of the top associates in the government, they all worked for or had connections to Desmarais. So, for example, Pierre Trudeau worked for Desmarais. Brian Mulroney was a lawyer for Desmarais before becoming prime minister. Jean Chrétien is married to his daughter. And Paul Martin was also a lawyer and was a VP for a subsidy of Desmarais' main company, PowerCore. So all of these powerful prime ministers, they all had connections to the same man, and they all drove the same fundamental policies. John Diefenbaker, who became prime minister in 1957, was the last leader to be a social conservative. So he was unwilling to compromise on principles like the nuclear family, abortion, and religious liberty. So in Canada... When you hear the, the term conservative, it's a big tent term. And underneath that tent, there are different factions. Social conservatism has become the smallest faction in that fight. Those, those who are willing to fight for family, uh, abortion, and just religious rights. After Diefenbaker, the party became more focused on being fiscally conservative. So they'll have free trade, uh, less regulation. So they surrendered the cultural battle to Pierre Trudeau. While many conservative members of parliament, they attacked Trudeau's policies over the years, or they've pointed out different things like that, they've lacked the courage to expose the intent and motive behind the policies. So it's easy to attack the policies, but they're not attacking why the policies are being implemented. So at the federal level, you've essentially had a uniparty for 38 years mainly because the conservatives have lacked the courage to take a stand. This is true at the provincial level as well. Bill Davis, who was the conservative premier of Ontario in the 1980s, he did backdoor deals with Pierre Trudeau to enable the Charter of Rights to come into effect, while the current conservative premier, Doug Ford, supported Justin Trudeau when he suspended civil liberties during the Emergencies Act crackdown on the Freedom Convoy. Uh, about a year ago. So this is the uniparty at the worst, the Canadian uniparty, where conservative premiers collude with a federal liberal government to stay in power. 
the reason this happens is that if the federal government teams up with left-leaning Ontario and Quebec, they effectively stay in power and they can ignore the rest of the country because it's those countries that have a majority of the votes and ridings to win an election. So the Conservative Party has helped the Liberal Party, whether that's provincial or uh, federal. The Conservative movement, it regrouped in the early 2000s by merging the old Progressive Conservative Party, which had been around since 1942, with the Canadian Alliance Party, which was a new political party uh, based out of Western Canada that was more focused on social conservatism. So when these two groups merged, that's what created the modern Conservative Party of Canada, which is what we have today. And in 2006, Stephen Harper was the first prime minister elected that wasn't from Montreal in over 40 years. Despite conservatives touting Harper's record while in office, Harper failed to make any systemic changes to check the Marxist rot at the core of our institutions. Harper focused on the economy and not on the culture wars. Pierre Polyev is a unique politician because he seems to be one of the few that has publicly acknowledged the radicalization of the Liberal Party. This might be because his wife is from Venezuela and has firsthand experience with socialist regimes. The problem, though, is that Polyev appears to be heading down the same road as the rest of the Conservatives in name only. So commenting on the recent Conservative conference that, that was in uh, Quebec City uh, about a month ago, the Toronto Star wrote, quote, Polyev spoke admiringly of the province of Quebec protecting its language and culture the genius of its hydroelectric know-how, and the pledge to always be an ally of Quebec. If that was too subtle, he twice shouted from the stage, Vive la nation Québécois, which means long live the Québécois nation. For Quebec voters, who tend to be more liberal than the rest of the country, two other factors are at play. Polyev has said he's pro-choice to abortion, and he told Canadians last year his father is gay, end quote. Everything Polyev there said is the classic conservative and name-only talking points. So many in the media view Polyev as a conservative pit bull or as a fiery leader. Even the leftist publication Politico say Polyev is the man who could beat Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, at the next election. Polyev sees part of the Marxist attack on Canada, but will he have the courage to take a stand against it? There is no doubt that the radical left-wing policies of the Trudeau family have deliberately driven Canada into a steep decline. There has been an agenda to aggressively upend traditional biblical values that once underpinned Canadian society. The Conservatives, most often His Majesty's loyal opposition, have only offered a weak resistance at best and in some cases aided this Marxist agenda. The Canadian Uniparty apparatus is real. So now we come to the two important questions. Will getting rid of Justin Trudeau as Prime Minister help Canada? Maybe. Can Pierre Polyev save Canada? No. The real reason Canada is in such dire straits is beyond the willful intent of any Marxist leadership. The truth is all Canadians are to blame for what is happening. The reason for this is that politics are a reflection of national morality. 
evil leaders can come to power because there is a moral rot inside of society. This is the law of cause and effect that the Bible teaches from cover to cover. Sin, which is the breaking of God's laws, is the true cause of economic curses. You can read that in Deuteronomy 28, verses 16 through 20. It's the cause of weather disasters. You can read that in verses 23 and 24 of the same chapter. It's the cause of the faint-heartedness or lack of courage in our leadership, which you can read in Isaiah 3, verses 1 through 8. And it's the cause of the bitter affliction we're seeing in our nation. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 14, 26 through 27. So the Bible prophesied all of these things happening to our nation right now. And it identifies the cause. And that is our national sins. So what is needed more now than a change in leadership is a change of heart. True repentance towards God. Real repentance is about changing from reliance on man's way to reliance on God's way. That is the ultimate lesson we need to learn. There is no hope in man. Jeremiah 17 verse 5 says, quote, Thus says the Eternal, Cursed be the man that trusts in man, and makes flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Eternal. That scripture sums up perfectly where Canada is right now. Our hearts have departed from God, from his law, and we are trusting in man to solve our problems. The lesson God has been trying to teach mankind is to follow and trust God, but mankind has taken the road of painful experience instead. For Canadians and every person, the only path out of curses is towards obedience to God. No matter how many promises are made by leaders, they will never be able to fix the real cause. To learn more about what the Bible says on this subject, please read our free book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. This is Trumpet Hour. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. This is Jeremiah Jacques. For our next segment, we take a look at German forces working to portray America as evil and whitewashing German history. The trend is reviving German nationalism, as we'll hear all about in this report from trumpet writer Josue Michels. A bomb attack in Munich in 1980 killed 13 people and wounded 200 more. Who was behind the attack? After years of investigation, German prosecutors in 2020 claimed the attacker was motivated by far-right ideology. But Germany's alt-right magazine Compact believes America's deep state was involved. The magazine issue as the nations of the deep state claims to present evidence of CIA preparation of the Kennedy assassination and how the assassinations of the deep state subsequently became established as a model, including in Germany. In light of current events, this view of history becomes more believable. The United States is supposedly ruled right now by an 80-year-old president who received millions more votes than any other president without hitting the campaign trail. Anyone who watches his speeches knows 
someone else is in charge to many, this is proof enough that the deep state is real. As our book American Dead Tech shows, there is evidence that the coronavirus was engineered and used to help steal an election, that a so-called insurrection on January 6, 2021 was an inside job led by the FBI, and that the current US administration is illegitimate. But is the deep state responsible for Germany's far-right problem? The trumpet doesn't claim to know the ins and outs of every historic event. No source in this world could make such a claim. Therefore, it is crucial to understand the biases of each new source we evaluate. Compact's bias is easily identified. Its website ran a large ad titled Mass Murder on Germans. The history issue, the death camps of the Americans, accused General Dwight D. Eisenhower of deliberately mass-murdering Germans in prisoner of war camps. Another issue was titled Historical Lies Against Germany. Compact's goal is to portray America as evil and whitewash Germany's history, fueling the Germans' negative view of America. The greatest danger with this bias is not that it blurs the lines between truth and fiction, but that it is reviving German nationalism. Compact ignores Germany's own deep state, the underground Nazi movement. It claims the left in Germany and the deep state in America have invented the existence of such a network. But there's plenty of evidence of right-wing motivated conspiracies. Furthermore, there's historic evidence that this underground movement was planned even before World War II ended. But in a world of lies, How can you know what is true? Fake news, conspiracy theories and lies have become more prevalent than ever. Who can we believe anymore? The media, politicians, no one? Former German Defense Minister Karl Theodor zu Guttenberg posed these questions to his LinkedIn followers on September 3rd. He warned, quote, With future technological possibilities, especially artificial intelligence, The boundaries between fiction and truth could blur even further. End of quote. If you no longer trust the established media or politicians, you're not alone. Other than the Weather Channel, no media organization enjoys the trust of more than a third of the United States population, according to a 2023 study. Germans generally trust their media more than Americans, but even here, we have seen a decline to a new low of 43%, according to the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. Edelman's annual trust barometer shared exclusively with Axios shows that 56% of Americans agree with the statement journalists and reporters are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or cross exaggerations, end of quote. That's a battleground AI is entering. Artificial intelligence is used for social media, micro-targeting advertisements, and personalized search algorithms to bring about new ways of engaging with users, collecting their data, and potentially influencing their behavior. AI has no moral constraints, 
and no perception of what is true and what is false. It can deploy fake news articles, social media posts, videos or fabricated interviews with public figures. Even if you know it's fake, repetition makes the fake appear real, but the attack could be much more subtle. Chapter 9 of ChatGPT, The Dark Side of AI Artificial Intelligence states, quote, With sophisticated algorithms and data-driven decision-making, AI systems can be designed to keep users engaged, even addicted to certain products or services. This addiction can be used as a tool for exploitation and manipulation, especially in the context of AI-generated misinformation and propaganda. By targeting vulnerable individuals and exploiting their addictive tendencies, malicious actors can use AI to spread false information or manipulate public opinion. End of quote. Over the millenniums, mankind has proven to be incredibly susceptible to lies. What we perceive as truth is far more than just a string of facts. It's often a narrative. Facts can be used to give a false narrative. As more facts seemingly prove this perception, it becomes truth in people's minds. Facts that disagree with the narrative are dismissed. This narrative may be that natural disasters are caused by carbon dioxide emissions, that all Ukrainian freedom fighters are neo-Nazis, that America is the cause of all evil, that a group of Jews is ruling our world. Some of these narratives have no truth to them. But there are true stories that give them credibility. The truth becomes more obscure once you start to believe a certain narrative. After you believe the particular narrative, you may receive content that shows how people are suffering from that social, political or environmental issue. If you believe in climate change, You see more disasters. If you believe in the opposite, you see more stories about the negative consequences of so-called green energy. If you believe that America and capitalism is the cause of all evil, you see more stories that appear to prove this narrative. These reports may be true or slightly manipulated, but they are used to change your thinking and behavior. In the end, you find yourself in a polarized world emotionally charged society with opposing views, each side believing they have to stop the other side. The blurring of truth and lies is a dangerous weapon. In America, this may lead to a civil war. But history shows that there are additional dangers. Adolf Hitler used this weapon in a masterful way to seek the destruction of a race and to start the deadliest war in history. Millions believed his words and were willing to fight for what they perceived as truth. AI is not really the danger here. Technological advances are only as dangerous as the humans controlling them. But the Bible warns of an end-time leader who will rise up and cast down the truth to the ground. Daniel 8 verse 12 After the lines between truth and lies are blurred, He will lead a polarized world to war. Verse 25 states, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, 
and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. How this man will rise and deceive mankind is explained in detail in our free booklet, Nahum, an end-time prophecy for Germany. What is truth and how can we guard against lies? There is only one way, God's revelation. The Bible exposes the conspiracies of this world unlike any other book. It boldly proclaims that the whole world is deceived. Revelation 12 verse 9 and that the words contained in the Bible are truth, John 17, 17. The Bible predicts the future, and you can prove this for yourself. The trumpet views world events through the lens of Bible prophecy. Revelation 17, verse 8 speaks of a beast that was and is not, and yet is, which shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. As our booklet, German in the Holy Roman Empire, explains, this prophecy shows that the spirit of Nazi Germany is alive today and will lead to the worst war ever. Only Jesus Christ's intervention put a stop to it. Verse 14. As we see the lines between truth and lies increasingly blurred, as we see new technologies that help manipulate human beings' minds, we have to be aware of the greatest deception of all history, that of Satan the devil. We have to be aware of the many Bible prophecies that warn against that deception and show us where it will lead. It is those Bible prophecies that show us the light in the dark world. To understand Germany's history and future in light of these Bible prophecies, I encourage you to request a free copy of Germany and the Holy Roman Empire by Gerald Fleury. It's time for today's Last Word. One day when a boy named Mephibosheth was only five years old, his world fell apart. His father, Jonathan, was killed in battle against the fierce Philistine army. His grandfather, King Saul, was also killed in the same battle. And as if all of that were not enough, later that very same day, Mephibosheth's nurse was trying to help him flee to safety, and something went wrong. The boy fell and hurt both of his feet, and he hurt them so badly that they never fully healed, so he was permanently crippled. These are serious trials that this boy suffered, and there was more. In the years before his grandfather, King Saul, had died, Saul had tried several times to kill the man who became king of the country next. That was King David. So Mephibosheth not only grew up crippled and without a father and grandfather, but he also feared that David would be angry about the fact that his grandfather had tried to kill him and that this might make King David want to punish Mephibosheth. These are some of the heaviest trials a person could experience, and they would be especially difficult for a child to endure. 
But throughout all of this, the Bible shows that God did not forget Mephibosheth. After that terrible day, life continued slowly for Mephibosheth. His childhood was lonely, and his teenage years too. Besides being fatherless, he also had no brothers or sisters to share life with. And because of his handicap, he couldn't train for and look forward to joining the army, as many young men his age did. He was also not able to do much work in Israel's agrarian economy, and athletic activities were out of the question. And even if he hadn't been crippled, Mephibosheth may have still shied away from those kinds of things since he thought it best to keep a low profile so that King David wouldn't set his sights on him. So Mephibosheth's teenage years were tough. And then one day when he was around 20, he received word that King David wanted to see him. Mephibosheth was panic-stricken. He likely thought, I've kept a low profile and have never tried to undermine the king's position. How did King David find out that I even exist? What if he wants to kill me to get revenge on my grandfather? He was terrified, but he knew that an order from the king couldn't be ignored. So trembling, Mephibosheth limped into King David's court, and he threw himself down on his face in fear. He felt that this was the biggest day in his life ever since that tragic day 15 years earlier when his whole world had crumbled. He was horrified, just wondering what would happen next. Would this be the end? But King David looked at Mephibosheth, laying on the ground and trembling, and he was moved with great compassion. Fear not, the king said. I'm not going to do you any harm. In fact, the reason I summoned you here is so that I can help you. Your dad was the best friend I ever had. He was closer to me than all my brothers or anyone else in my life. I loved your father deeply, and now that I know who you are, that you are his son, I want to show you kindness. Mephibosheth looked up at the young king with his eyes wide, and King David continued, Here's what I plan to do. You know all of the lands that were under your grandfather's control? Well, I've been ruling over all those areas for the last several years, but from now on, Mephibosheth, they're yours. And there's more. I don't want you to live a lonely life out there, just hiding yourself away, living in a fearful way. I want you to eat at my table from now on. So you have a standing invitation to come to my palace and eat at my table, the king's table, for the rest of your life. Mephibosheth could hardly believe his ears. He felt that with all of this, David was basically saying to him, I know that your dad died a tragic death and that it's been very hard for you, but now you will be my son. It was a momentous relief for Mephibosheth to learn that David didn't plan to do him any harm, but this was going way beyond that. He was being shown more kindness and love than he could imagine. His life had been difficult and lonely for as long as he could remember, for some 15 years, and he'd kind of gotten used to a bleak existence, but now he was being shown so much mercy. It was a time of great emotion for Mephibosheth, and the Bible tells us exactly what he said. In 2 Kings 9, verse 8, he's recorded as saying, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? A dead dog. That's how Mephibosheth saw himself. 
Since he was crippled and grew up without a dad or even a grandfather, he thought of himself apparently as a worthless person. This gives us insight into just how hard Mephibosheth's life had been, and it shows why he could barely believe that King David was reaching out to him and taking him under his wing, almost like a father to a son. He could barely believe that he would be financially very comfortable, owning all the lands that his grandfather used to own. And since he was a cripple, David also instructed another man named Ziba and his family to work the land in Mephibosheth's place. Mephibosheth was also overjoyed to understand that he wouldn't have to be isolated and lonely anymore. Those days were over. He now had a permanent chair at the king's table. So this was an incredible and a life-changing turn of events for Mephibosheth. At this time, King David was on his way to becoming a man after God's own heart. Acts 13.22 makes that clear. He was learning to see people the way God sees them. God has pity on the downtrodden, the crippled, and the fatherless, and he wants to help people with those kinds of trials. So God did help Mephibosheth through King David. David even says in 2 Samuel 9.3 that what he was showing to Mephibosheth was not his own kindness, but the kindness of God. So there's something in there that all of us could think about. If we see someone crippled or suffering health problems or who's lost a parent or another loved one or who's struggling with any other tough trial, we can be like King David. We can go out of our way to love that person and to help them. We can let God help them through us. Another lesson from this account is that sometimes things go terribly for us and we can feel low down and even worthless. We can feel alone in the world. We might even feel like a dead dog, as Mephibosheth did. But God is the one who inspired David to reach out to Mephibosheth. He inspired David to become like a father to this fatherless boy. And God wants to do that for each of us so we don't have to feel worthless and unloved. He wants to give us a place at his table for all time. We are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please check out our show notes for today's episode on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com to find links to the articles that today's reports were based on. That's at thetrumpet.com. Also, you can email us any questions or comments you may have about today's episode. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to my guests, Rafaro Manyapa, Mr. Abraham Blondeau, and Josue Michels. Thanks also to Isaac Lorenz and Nicholas Irwin for helping with the audio work for this episode. And thanks very much to each of you listeners for checking out today's episode. Until next time, keep watching your world. Your world.